Good evening and welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC Fight Night 188, also known as UFC Vegas 27. I am your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com, and with me today, instead of my usual co-host Keith Schillen, is Mr. Tom Feely. Tom is a writer at SureDog, where he has been doing the official UFC uh, preview articles since July of 2018, so coming up on his third anniversary here. Uh, we've had him on a roundtable before, and it is long since time we had him back. Uh, Tom, how are you doing this evening? Doing well, yeah. Thank you for having me back. I was looking forward to uh, breaking down a surprisingly good card. A surprisingly good card is a real good way to put it. And one thing in particular that surprised me about this card as I uh, did research for this program is how many people there are in this card that I've kind of forgotten about because they've either been gone for a good while or they just haven't been that busy recently. Like from basically the first fight on the card all the way up through the main event where you've got one fight a year, Rob Font versus, you know, Cody Garbrandt, who was off in outer space uh <laughs> just you know w without going into yet you know who you're picking in in which fights uh from a fan perspective w which of these fights like i would say south of the of the main and co-main event would you be most excited in uh, as a fan i mean that like you know if you're going that i think the other obvious like Number three fight would be Lacromanson and Mishabazian, which um, when it comes to the card, like I think feel that addition like really helped bolster this card and kind of click everything else into place. Um, from a casual fan perspective, I mean, it's always good to see, you know, guys like Court McGee back and, you know, Ben Rothwell against Chris Barnett should be uh, something interesting. Oh. What um, odds would you have laid on Chris Barnett ever making it to the UFC? That's a, <laughs> like, I mean, Roque, Mar whatever, you know, I mean, Roque Martinez did. So I guess it's like, you know, once it's that, but it's been like the, the fun thing about the pandemic is like these guys who haven't um, gotten, you know, shot, wouldn't have gotten shots. Otherwise I've been getting, you know, these more journeyman types have been getting late notice call-ups, but Chris Barnett is one that came yeah out of, out of left field. <laughs> Um, even by those standards. Yes, even by the standards of COVID area UFC, yes. where just the machine needs bodies to, to yeah, run on. He's, this he's was a body. weird one. <laughs> I, I said this on uh, my my non dog show this week, that if William Knight looks like what would happen if you tried to make a human being out of bowling balls, uh, Chris Barnett it looks like what would happen if you tried to make a human being out of one bowling ball. Like, he... <laughs> He has a singular physique. Anyway, we'll get to him later. He's he's way up there, you know, on the upper reaches of the the undercard. But l let's dive right into these prelims, if that's all right. Let's go for it. All right. Uh, first up at UFC Vegas 27, we have a lightweight matchup between Rafael Alves and Demir Ismagulov. Uh, Alves, the 30-year-old Brazilian, is 19-9 and overall. This is his UFC debut. Uh, he appeared on Dana White's Contender Series last August, had a very impressive second-round submission win over Alejandro Flores Garcia. Then, ahead of his expected featherweight debut, blew weight by a UFC record 12 pounds, meaning he even missed the lightweight limit, and that fight was completely scotched. So here he is in presumably a more suitable weight class, and uh, knock on wood, he makes the weight this time. He'll be welcoming back to the UFC uh, Ismagulov. Uh, like I said off the top, this card is loaded with guys that are really good, or at least they were really good, and you forgot all about them. 
Ismagulov, the 30-year-old Russian, is a sterling 19-1 and overall. He is on a 14-fight win streak, the last three of those in the UFC, but most recently uh, fought in August of 2019. So he's been gone for nearly two years uh, before he, he left uh, the UFC, or didn't leave the UFC, before he took off you know, almost two years. He racked up wins over Tiago Moises and Joel Alvarez that have aged very well, to say the least. Those guys, like those two names, have, have done a lot in the last two years, while he has not. Uh, the odds heavily favor the Russian. He's out there around minus 550 as the favorite. You can get Alba's at uh, plus 425, as high as plus 430 as uh, the underdog. Tom, do those odds sound about right to you? How does this one shake out? Uh, who wins and how? I mean, pretty much like, you know, Alves may be in his more natural weight class here, but he certainly gets a way tougher matchup uh, this time around. I think uh, Ismagulov might be the most underrated guy in the UFC just as far as like not having prominent placement, not having a finish, not being a finishing machine, but just getting some wins that have aged particularly well. Um, who can, and like you said, who can hold his own about anywhere. Um, Alves is a weird fighter, just a lot of. Um, big singular moments and kind of weird combinations and decisions. Um, so I think there's maybe like, you know, Ismagulov likes to keep things at a relatively slow pace. Um, you know, he's been out of the cage for two years. Everything's fairly by the book. So I think, um, you know, there might be a shot that Alves can catch him with something weird. Like just, um, I think back to the um, Magomed Mustafaev, uh, Mustafaev, Fiziev fight where, you know, Fiziev, the much more practiced fighter, but then Mustafiev just immediately comes out with something weird that just, you know, catches him off guard. But, um, you know, I, that's a very, very low percentage. I'm basically just, you know, it's not a really high percentage uh, path to victory. And the odds, I think, correctly reflect that. Um, yeah, I mean, this looks like, you know, it's, um, it's not my, quite my surest bet on the card, um, but Ismugulov uh, um, deserves to be the huge favorite. So um, Ismugulov by decision is my pick um, just because in the UFC hasn't really been much of a finishing machine. But um, yeah, looks like a pretty clear one-sided fight. I'm, I'm with you on this one. And I also see Ismugulov by decision just because of the kind of deliberate pace he fights at that you alluded to. Like, he seems like whether it's on the feet or on the ground, and he's equally comfortable both places, he really, really likes to feel in control of the fight. Yes. He's, his style is almost calculated to minimize the possibility of that huge Rafael Alves one-shot that you kind of laid out there as probably his only realistic path to victory. The other thing here is that despite the fact that Alves is, I mean, he has a stocky little tank of a man, and he you know blew weight horribly for 145, Ismagulov is going to be the much, much larger man yep. in the cage. He's got that, well, you know, he's got that Khabib-type body where he's deceptively tall. He's kind of got broad shoulders and just there, there's a deceptive amount of muscle on him. His frame is going to be way bigger than Alva's. Uh, and yeah, I, this, I don't think it's going to be real pretty. It's going to be a grindy one. But yeah, give me uh, Ismagulov by a very one-sided decision. Probably takes all three rounds. Next up on the prelims, it is another matchup at lightweight, and it is once again another fight featuring a couple people that have been out of sight and potentially out of mind for a little while. Also, two guys badly in need of a win in the form of Yancey Medeiros and Demir Hadjovic. 
Uh, Medeiros, the 33-year-old Hawaiian, is 15 and seven with one no contest in the UFC. Or sorry, 15 and seven with one no contest overall. He is six and seven with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, he reached some pretty high heights back in uh, 2017 or so, but he is currently on a three-fight skid. Although they've all come against fairly sturdy competition in the form of Donald Cerrone at welterweight, then Gregor Gillespie and Lando Venata at lightweight. That most recent fight against Venata was all the way back last February uh, at UFC Fight Night, Anderson versus Blahovich 2. Uh, he'll be taking on uh, Hadjevich, who I believe is still the only uh, Bosnian fighter in the UFC. The 34-year-old is... Oh, is there another? Mirsad Bektic. Oh, of course, Mirsad Bektic. Uh, Demir Hadjevic, one of the very few Bosnian fighters in the UFC... The 34-year-old is 13-6 and six overall. He is 3-4 and four in the UFC. Uh, much like Medeiros, he had a pretty nice little run going there, but he is on a two-fight losing streak, uh, having dropped a unanimous decision to Christo Tiagos and been choked out in just seconds by Hinata Moicano. That most recent fight last uh, March at UFC Fight Night Lee versus Oliveira. So this is a fight between two guys who have not fought yet in, in the COVID-era UFC. Uh, they will have a stark, empty arena to welcome them, them back to action. The uh, odds, a near pick here. Hadjovic, the just slight, slight favorite at minus 115. Uh, Medeiros, you can get him at uh, not quite even money yet. He's out there at minus 105. Uh, Tom, well, welcome these two guys back with a little bit of a breakdown of how you see this fight playing out. Back-to-back Demirs. Never thought I'd see the day. Um, <laughs> between yeah, Hazovich and Ismagulov. Um, yeah, with Medeiros, just the inactivity really kind of masked that slide. You know, in my head, he's still, like, you know, been a fairly successful action fighter. But, you know, he had that headline. You know, he was a head UFC headliner. And then, basically, he's, he's pulled the James Vick of not getting the win since. Yeah. You know, I don't think things are going to get that quite that dire. Um, yeah, uh, it's been again, like it's you said that their losses against good competition, which makes this a bit hard to parse as far as like where the floor is. Um, you know, Gregor Gillespie, I think, was a fight he was basically never going to win. Um, and Venata, um, like Venata has been inconsistent enough over like the last few years, you know, uh, I would say I thought he was trending downward, but then he went ahead and had a good performance uh, last week. So I'm not really sure exactly where to calibrate that. And then, you know, he's been out of action. And then um, I didn't think he looked particularly good in the uh, Venata fight, just uh, everything else aside. So I'm kind of a little bit down on him. Um, and that's just a question of whether or not Hazovich can take advantage of that. Um, Hazovich, I liked as a prospect. I thought he was, you know, pretty fun uh, puncher, but then had a really rough UFC debut. They threw him against Mirbek Tysimov, got eaten alive. And because uh, of that, you know, and also they gave him then Martin Held after that, which he won, but was also tough going. Um, so he's kind of slowed down as a fighter, become much more of like a cautious striker, and then has been willing to go to the wrestling as a fallback plan. Um, so it's basically, you know, I think early on, I think Medeiros is still going to have some more success on the feet. And then I think Hadzovic, either if he doesn't get knocked out, is going to start going for the wrestling. And then from there, um, you know, I don't really know. It's in my mind it can go either way. Like, I don't really particularly think much of uh, Medeiros as a wrestler, but a lot of that could be colored just by, you know, the Gillespie fight being relatively fresh in my mind as far as, you know, in his career. Um, I'm picking Hadzovic by decision by the wrestling. Uh, um, but I think it's just, you know, 
it's it could be a pretty like honestly like surprisingly slow and ugly fight for guys that you know in my head i would think of as action fighters um but yeah i think it's going to be a close one the picking hasovich to somewhat grind out a win in not particularly pretty fashion I'm I'm just going to tell you that this show will be a lot more fun if we have dissension and we disagree on a bunch of picks. But thus far, uh, we're, we're batting a thousand. I, I see it pretty much the same way you do. And the thing about Medeiros is I think of him as kind of one of the last of the throwback Hawaiian stereotype fighters. Like the, the you know, the 2004 stereotype of like all the Hawaiians is just like wild, scrappy brawlers. Obviously, that's very, very out of date. You know, that simply doesn't describe somebody like uh, Max Holloway or Danny Gay. But Medeiros is, is the original. Like, he he can be a fairly technical kickboxer when he wants to, but he doesn't want to. You know, he just wants to, to throw like Hayes. Uh, he's a surprisingly decent offensive wrestler when the mood strikes him, but a terrible, or sorry, a surprisingly decent offensive wrestler when the mood strikes him, but a terrible defensive wrestler. He, he is, like, he's the stereotype. He's the, He's the guy, and that just doesn't fly well in, in the modern uh, UFC, especially in the modern lightweight and welterweight divisions where he's trying to do this. Uh, I'm not super high on either of these guys at, at this point, especially with like well over a year off in both cases. But I, I'm with you. Even if Medeiros is giving Hadjovic some stuff that he doesn't like the taste of on the feet, he'll be able to turn to the wrestling and Medeiros won't have an answer for it. Uh, Despite the fact that Medeiros has fought at welterweight, I think of Hadjovic as probably a physically stronger guy when they get hands on each other. That plus some, you know, fairly decent fundamental wrestling, you know, uh, spells, like you said, not the prettiest, but a much needed win for him because there is every chance that both these guys are fighting for their jobs. Yeah, um, I believe Medeiros already said this is the last fight on his contract I've seen. And um, uh, to the strength uh, tip, and uh, I'm not sure the exact timing, but I think it was after the Cerrone fight. Um, I know he moved to like a plant-based diet and even been talking about cutting to featherweight. And I think basically that sapped whatever physical strength, you know, he's at. Because, I mean, he was a pretty, you know, welterweight. He was a pretty solid, tough guy. And now it's just things, you know, especially getting that Venata fight, he just looks kind of like wimp <laughs> not like it's, yeah. you know he's drained himself not in a good way he's been out if if you want to if you want to be a strong vegan just marry it early like mac danzig don't don't turn to it as your mistress <laughs> it, like late in your career all right you ready to move on to the next one yep all righty we now head down to the featherweight division for a uh, up-and-comers um, meeting between josh kulabau and the debuting yilan shah Kulabau, the 26-year-old Australian, is 8-1-1 one, one overall. He is 0-1-1 uh, in the UFC. Editorializing a bit, that draw was a split draw with Charles Jordan that, frankly, most observers uh, cited was Jordan. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But, yeah, he's 0-1-1 he's one one in the UFC. He'll be welcoming the 27-year-old uh, uh, inner Mongolian, Yilan Shah, who is 17 and six overall and fought most recently on the day after Christmas in uh Joy Ching King. But yeah, he had a very, very busy uh, 2020, including a KO loss to Zhu Rong, who debuted in the UFC, I believe just last month. Uh, perhaps seeing Shaw as a bit of an unknown quantity, the odds makers do have Kulabau as a comfortable favorite to pick up his first UFC win. He is out there at minus 250. 
uh, as the favorite. Uh, Shaw plus two ten, plus two fifteen or so as the underdog. Tom, uh, what can you tell us about uh, Yilan Shaw? And do you, in fact, believe that Kulabau is going to pick up his first Octagon win? I'm still having some trouble, um, as you know, some of my picks uh, last month showed calibrating, kind of translating up the uh, level of competition from China to the UFC, especially on a athletic level. Uh, what I saw from Shaw, I mean, looked pretty solid, um, just, you know, but also some of it seemed to be him getting by as a better athlete, um, like looking at his record just again, like against Jurong uh, and a few other steps in competition against like what I would consider, you know, mid to lower level, the equivalent of mid to lower level UFC fighters has been like the clear losses in his record, um, which makes, you know, Kulabau a pretty interesting um, initial matchup just because the main thing that st- stood out about Kulabau is that he's not an athlete um, heading into um, his UFC debut against Jalen Turner last year. I mean, looking at this, looking at his fights, I was like, okay, there's some smart, you know, stuff there as far as being a ranged striker, um, but athletically, he's just going to get eaten alive. Um, and I think he's done pretty well, you know, even if the results aren't there to kind of, uh, you know, hang tough and be a pretty tough fighter. Um, against Turner, you know, he was fighting a clear losing fight, but it wasn't really until, and he got, seemed to injure his leg, uh, that basically that directly led to the finish. Um, so he was surviving there. And then, um, you know, he was able to get a draw out of Jordan and even had like some big moments in the first round, which is frankly more than I expected. Um, so, okay, like he's not the best athlete, but if Shah's game is basic enough, like he seems to be, especially if he doesn't have a clear advantage, be pretty slow paced. Um, it can be cowed a little bit. So um, I expect the dynamic to be basically like Kulabau having some success. Um, you know, fighting from range and then it's up to Shao whether or not he can close the distance and get a finish. Um, I mean, I'm picking Kulabao basically to like just um, coast out a decision that again may not be that exciting. Like it may just be just, you know, him kind of trying to play sniper. Um, though I think the odds are way too wide. Like Kulabao doesn't really deserve to be a minus, you know, that big of a favorite against anyone. Like, there should be a narrow a narrow favorite, if anything, um, if not a pick em. But uh, I am picking Kulabau by a decision. Uh, I, I do love that you brought up the the difficulty in calibrating a performance of somebody who's been wrecking shop in, in China, you know, once they step up to UFC-level fighters. Because, you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot as I think about this fight is Zhu Rong's uh, UFC debut, where he is a guy that perhaps even more so than Shaw was getting by on just being the much better athlete over in WLF. You know, he was just bullying people around, including, uh, including Shaw in their fight. And then he ran up against a middling UFC lightweight that he just could not do that to. And and we saw what happened. That gives me pause about Shaw. Cause otherwise I'd be like, Oh man, you know, this guy has some value as just maybe an upset special, just take a flyer uh, on this guy to beat a guy in Kulabau that should probably be 0-2 in the UFC right now. But be, like because of that Zhurong performance, not because it's MMA math, but just because it's a nice measuring stick, I, I do think uh, you're right in that Kulabau's, uh, well, his, his deficits in athleticism from a UFC uh, standpoint or by UFC standard will probably, uh, they'll, they'll probably be papered over 
you know, like against against Shaw. So give me cool about by by decision as well, you know, to to finally pick up that that first UFC win and the jury will remain out over whether Shaw actually belongs. The UFC Fight Night 188 prelims soldier on with a flyweight matchup between Bruno Silva and Victor Rodriguez. Silva, the 31-year-old Brazilian, is 11-5-2 with one no contest. Overall, he is 1-2 with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, for those who don't remember, that no contest was a second-round loss to Khalid Taha that was overturned when uh, Taha tested positive for the whole CVS. Uh, he'll be welcoming back to the UFC Rodriguez, the 28-year-old Alaskan who made his, uh, I believe it was shortish notice debut against Adrian Yanez back on the UFC's Halloween fight night card. Uh, Yanez certainly gave him a, a miserable Halloween, lancing him with a head kick halfway through the first round of their fights. Uh, odds on this one uh, do heavily favor Silva. He is uh, minus 330. Rodriguez out there at plus 270 or so. Uh, I've, I've got to say, I, I always look a little bit askance at odds this wide between two fighters who are this little known of quantities at, at the top level. But I actually feel pretty comfortable with this one. I, I feel as though, I mean, I'm not saying either of these guys is a, a future top 10 fighter in the division, but I think Bruno Silva is a UFC quality flyweight who's just had a rough run in terms of matchmaking where Rodriguez, he, he may not be long for, he may not be long for the octagon. Uh, Rodriguez's last loss against uh, Yanez, it doesn't tell me too, too much about him because uh, Yanez is one of the bluest of blue chippers in uh, that division. That was at Bantamweight, even worse. And, Giannis is a finisher. I mean, he's he's going to head kick a few more people in the first round before it's all said and done. At the same time, I can't draw too much from a Silva's uh, win over JP Bays, just because I'm like I'm not sold on Bays as uh, a UFC level flyweight either. But so, despite the fact that he beat Bays, finally got the the UFC win, I actually take more. Uh, take more heart and take more encouragement over what a tough fight he gave uh, David Dvorak, who fights later this evening, and then Tagir Olambikov in, in those two fights. That led me to think that, okay, matched appropriately, he could beat some people in the UFC. Sure enough, he was matched appropriately next and beat someone in the UFC. Uh, and I think he's going to uh, keep that up against Rodriguez. My guess would be that uh, it happens on the ground. You know, either he initiates a takedown or, you know, he hurts Rodriguez on the feet, maybe pancakes a desperation takedown, spins and takes the back and chokes him out or pounds him out. But give me Silva. I'm going to say this one goes to the second round. But yeah, give me give me Silva by uh, second round uh, finish. And I'm going to say it's a submission. What say you, Tom? You basically took my exact read, except for the fact that I have a second round stoppage, probably on the mat instead on the mat instead of a submission. Um, like you, I mean, um, you know, Silva was a guy who impressed me in his losses, and it was like, okay, he's you know athletically outgunned, but 
gives a hard fight every time out and just like I said matched appropriately which he was and his uh last fight you know he's looked like a at least you know a low you know a guy who can basically like cut the wheat from the chaff as far as he belongs on the UFC roster um as far as Rodriguez um like I mean coming off you know I know it's like a bit of a like uh ongoing joke kind of like the alaska fc circuit you know and kind of the guys they've signed off uh that um who've been able to do big records and like guys like carlton minus and like even uh i was gonna say um euros medic who i'm probably not pronouncing correctly and even carlton minus it's like okay um you know i could at least see an idea of what's going to work here even if in minuses um case it didn't work at a ufc level with rodriguez he's a guy where just like again when i kind of scout guys coming to the ufc it's usually like all right i don't know if this is going to work but i can try and see what they're doing rodriguez was a guy where i'm not even like really sure what the like what the idea is kind of like i'm not really sure what's could even work here at a UFC level, to be frank. Um, the only interesting thing here is that um, this is his first cut to flyweight. He's been a uh, career featherweight and bantamweight. So maybe like there's something physically that clicks at 125 pounds, like a strength advantage or something that, um, you know, we have no ways picked up on otherwise. But this looks like one-way traffic for Silva. Um, the odds are, you know, correct in my mind. It could be even wider. And... It's interesting uh, that you mentioned that because one thing that's for certain is Silva is not a big flyweight. So if Rodriguez makes the weight and doesn't look like, you know, death warmed over on the scale, he should be the bigger man in the cage and have an advantage there. That, that's a, a good point. Uh, I'll, I'll make one little side note just because you kind of delved into the whole Alaska FC thing. Uh, one of the things I'm currently doing for uh, Sherdog is I just rebooted a series that Sherdog's Mike Sloan did uh, five or six years ago called Greats of the States, where he just, you know, for each of the 50 states, he listed the best or like the most accomplished, the greatest fighter, you know, to hail from that state. Uh, and I've been basically rebooting and updating it. You know, if, if it's changed in the last five years, okay, then, you know, I, I let you know. Dude, five years ago, Cody McKenzie was the pick from Alaska. Think about that for a second. A guy that went like, you know, 11 and 0 in Alaska, then, you know, what I think, what, like one and five in the UFC and just became like a running punchline from then on. That was the greatest they'd come up with. So Alaska's definitely gotten turned over on its head because he, he won't even make the top three this time. You know, we've got Jared Cannonier. Hell, I mean, Gina Mazzani is like two yeah. and five in the UFC and she's probably ahead of him now. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's progress such as it is. Prog <laughs> yes, progress, progress such as it is. Absolutely. All right, um, let's let's move on. We we've talked as much about Alaska MMA as as I think uh, Cody we need McKenzie to on this. literally a running punchline. Just oh, <laughs> shit just got real. Next up on the UFC Vegas 27 prelims, we head to what is the heaviest fight on the card up to this point, unless. I mean, unless Rafael Alves really screws the pooch on weigh-in day. It is a welterweight matchup between Court McGee and uh, Claudio Silva. Silva, the 38-year-old Brazilian, is 14-2 and two overall. He is 5-1 and one in the UFC. Uh, in fact, he just took his first UFC loss last October uh, at the hands of James Krause. Before that, he had won his first five in the UFC and had just kind of been sneakily snaking his way uh, you know, onto the welterweight rankings radar, at least. 
And he'll be meeting McGee. Uh, the 36-year-old from Utah is 19-10 and 10 overall. He is 8-9 and nine since joining the UFC as the winner of the 11th season of The Ultimate Fighter. He fought uh, most recently last October as well, dropping a unanimous decision to Carlos Condit. Uh, that extended his losing streak to three straight. Uh, those coming against Diego Lima, Sean Brady, and now, of course, uh, Condit. Uh, despite uh, his kind of dire track record of late, this one is a dead pick em out there. They're both out at minus 110. I've got to say, I'm surprised that these odds are as close as they are. I'm also surprised that Claudio Silva is older than Court McGee because Court McGee just... He looks like such a spent force. He just looks so, so shopworn. I thought he was underrated when he came out of Tough 11. I thought, okay, here's a tough as nails guy who does a little of everything pretty well. Uh, he's not a super, super plus athlete by uh, UFC standards, but whether he's at uh, welterweight or middleweight, he seems to have like sneaky physical strength like the crusher was a, a good nickname for him but his kind of standard you know middle of the road athleticism has become minus athleticism recently and he just seems like a guy in all three of those fights and this three fight losing streak i mean it dates back two full years he lost to diego lima back in april of 2019 just seems like a guy who, who can't pull the trigger he's tough enough to stop some of what his opponent wants to do to him but there's just no spark of life there's no time really in any of those three fights that I thought, oh, man, you know, McGee's going to pull this one out. Like, it's just felt like a death march to me, uh, even if some of the fights were individually competitive. This one just feels like a bummer to me. And, you know, Claudio Silva being 38, eventually, like, the wheels are, are going to come off. You know, like, this isn't heavyweight. We, we don't get many welterweights just powering on in, in, into their 40s. But I'm not picking this to be the time to do it. I don't know if if he's going to tap uh, McGee out, but I, I think he's just going to completely dominate this one. I'm surprised that this is a pick him. Uh, I think Silva's going to... I mean, he'll probably entertain McGee on the feet for a while. Just McGee's so slow on, on the feet these days. He's pretty hittable. It's still hard to really hurt him bad, but I think... Uh, Silva will probably goof around on the feet for as long as he wants to, at least in the first round. But once he decides to bring this to the ground, I think he's going to be able to. And if not tap out McGee, I think he's just going to be able to keep him completely reacting on the defensive, just squashed the whole time. Uh, give me uh, Claudio Silva by lopsided decision. Yeah, so it's uh, I'm not picking McGee to be clear. Just um, I still also wind up at Silva via decision. Um, I'm not surprised the odds are close. I'm a little surprised that like Silva at least isn't somewhat of a like you know fairly clear favorite like within minus two hundred because um, this is basically just like like McGee is basically down to more or less just like durability. Like he's he's hung tough he's hung tougher than i've expected at this point in the game against you know during this like five out of six losses um you know hasn't gotten finished outside of santiago ponzinibbio but um like my thing is like the 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 kraus fight for silva like to me that was like okay now i can start the wheel the wheels start 
falling off. Um, just up to that point, and been kind of like a relentless maniac, and like you know would power through everything and just you know take downs and just the whole deal. Um, and like looking at the numbers on volume, uh, you know, before we hopped on to record, um, I was surprised to see that Silva still threw a lot, still threw I think like 216 strikes, I believe was the number um, against Kraus. But just watching it on film, it felt like he was just kind of like flailing ineffectively, and thus things were you know just going off the rails. Um, so it's the thing of like if Silva loses this fight, it will be Silva losing this fight more than McGee winning it. Like there, there are times where, and like, you know, these are fights often get wrong where it's okay. You know, the guy I'm favoring, I'm not necessarily feeling the best about him. Um, but then the question becomes like, all right, what can McGee do in return? Like even though I, you know, more shot version of Silva, just, he's just gonna, do, he's just gonna do, do more stuff like he's gonna you know even if he's not particularly accurate he's still gonna be the harder hitter even if you know i think he can take mcgee down if not you know control or or submit him like i think you know mcgee's gonna be able to hang around but then the question becomes like all right at a certain point if you hang around you have to take advantage of that and i don't think mcgee like basically you said has that much left in the tank to, in order to do that so yeah, i think it's going to be basically just three rounds of silva doing whatever he wants and like i'm not even sure what silva you know again 38 and coming off what i thought was a poor performance against kraus um not particularly optimistic about that but this still looks like a fight that he's clearly set up to win Outstanding. So that's uh, two picks for uh, Silva by decision. Am I correct? Yep. All righty. All right. We have arrived at the obligatory heavyweight slobber knocker of the evening. As it is Ben Rothwell welcoming Chris Barnett to the UFC. Rothwell, the 39-year-old from Kenosha, Wisconsin, is 38-13 and 13, uh, overall. He is 8-7. and seven since joining the UFC out of the uh, disintegration of uh, IFL and Affliction. He fought most recently last October, dropping a unanimous decision to Martin Tybura uh, at UFC Fight Night Moraes versus Sanhagen. That snapped a two-fight win streak for him over uh, the ghost of Stefan Struve and over the Ovent St. Prue heavyweight experiment. Uh, he will be, as I said, welcoming Chris Barnett to the UFC. Uh, if you don't know who Chris Barnett is, buckle up. Uh, the man who used to call himself Huggy Bear and apparently now calls himself Beast Boy, but hell if I'm going to stop calling him Huggy Bear, uh, hails from uh, Tampa, Florida. He is 34 years old. He is 21 and 6 overall, and he is currently on a six-fight win streak. At first blush, it may sound like uh, you're about to be treated to, you know, a s incredibly strong dark horse prospect in the heavyweight division whose UFC debut has been you know delayed for mysterious reasons don't get that in your head this is a five foot nine 300 pound bowling ball of a man who does flips and cartwheels in the cage uh, it is quite fitting that his professional debut was against Jonathan Ivy because he is basically a palette swapped Jonathan Ivy uh, honestly I question whether Barnett who is taking this fight on short notice will make the heavyweight limit because uh, he's fought close to 300 pounds before. Again, this is a five foot nine man. And he's fought at super heavyweights almost as often as at heavyweight over the last four or five years. Just on a, on a week that uh, this past Sunday, I saw Juan Adams 
you'll fight at super heavyweight here in my backyard because he didn't make the heavyweight limit. He fought at like 278 pounds. I question whether we're going to get the second super heavyweight fight in UFC history this uh, this uh, Saturday. Well, uh, Rothwell uh, is a comfortable favorite, as you might expect, of him you know, taking on a, a bit of a sideshow fighter. He is uh, minus 300, as high as minus 310. Barnett's out there at plus 250 or plus 255. And part of me thinks these odds are only as close as they are because they thought it was Josh Barnett. Uh, I mean, let me just get this uh, out of the way. Ben Rothwell, is he is a spent force, but he's a spent force at heavyweight where you can be a spent force and just keep fighting and keep winning enough to stay on UFC roster for another, literally another four or five years. It's not just that he's 39. It's that he's 39, and he's been at least within spitting distance of the heavyweight top 15 for like 15 years now. Uh, he's in the same way that... Uh, the same way that Yancey Medeiros is kind of one of the last of the just scrap Hawaiian savages, Ben Rothwell is the last of the Midwestern heavyweights who fattened up on jobbers in the early 2000s. You know, he's a, he's a guy that I, I think he got his record to like 18 and three at some point, just, you know, by beating up like the Travis Fultons of the world and, you know, like one in five guys in, you know, some uh, barn in, in Iowa. Uh, but he is, he's, I mean, for a while there, he was a legit top 10 heavyweight. Even into the twilight of his career, he still has some very impressive uh, wins on there. I mean, as recently as, you know, five years ago, he was beating up Josh Barnett and Matt Mitrione, two solid top 10 fighters at the time. He's not been completely out of it, even in losses to kind of fellow senior citizens like Junior Dos Santos and Andre Arlovsky. But he doesn't have much left but power. He used to be sneaky, quick, and athletic for a guy his size because he is a he is a huge guy. Like uh, I've been in the same room as a lot of UFC heavyweights. He's one of the guys where you you turn towards the door when he walks into the room just because you like feel a presence. He's a gigantic dude, and despite that, yeah, it used to be kind of fairly nimble, fairly light on his feet. Uh, you know, decent hand speed. That's that's all gone. Like his his athleticism is minus at this point. His gas tank, frankly, is is minus. He doesn't fall over and die just because he paces himself so slowly. But if he's losing a fight in the third round, I, I just have no faith that he has anything that that he can dig in and and pull out to to pull out the fight. the The loss to Tybura was incredibly dispiriting. Just uh, it it again, kind of like I said about Court McGee in the last fight. There just wasn't any point in that fight where I, I thought that Rothwell showed a spark of life that made me think he was going to turn things around. Having said all that, he's going to destroy Chris Chris Barnett. I bet it makes it to the second round just because Rothwell will be a little gun shy. He will be wary of the weird stuff that Barnett will do in the cage. Kind of like when, you know, Jonathan Ivey did like a barrel roll at Ken Shamrock and Shamrock was like, what the hell is this? I expect Barnett will survive to the second round, but second round Rothwell is going to realize the enormous advantages in reach he has, even if Barnett is quicker and he'll just start piecing him up, hurt him, probably chase him down to the to the ground and finish him with ground strikes in the second round tell me i'm crazy tom Nah, you basically you did steal my joke basically i was gonna say i was really happy chris barnett is getting the chance to avenge his father josh here <laughs> um maybe he'll wind up getting go-go choke too yeah. um 
Yeah, just Rothwell, you know, like you said, like the whole thing was he was always, he wasn't fast, but he was sneakily fast for a guy that large. And the three year layoff with injuries and the USADA stuff, basically, since coming back in 2019, I mean, he's basically been a punching bag. But the thing is, he is still big. He is still durable. It was the second that basically, you know, at heavyweight, a shot can always happen, but Rothwell's durable enough that. I don't think it's going to happen. And just, yeah, I have first round stoppage. Second wouldn't surprise me. Just, again, it's more just, you know, Rothwell being a spend for us, as you said. That would lead to it lasting that long. That brings us to the feature prelim of UFC Fight Night 188. It is a featherweight scrap between Ricardo Hamos and Bill Aljo. Hamos, the 25-year-old Brazilian, is... 14 and 3 overall. He's 5 and 2 in the UFC. He uh, fought most recently last July at UFC on ESPN 13. He lost uh, via first round TKO to Laron Murphy. That did break a modest two fight win streak for him over Journey Newsom and uh, Luis Eduardo Garagori. He'll be taking on Aljo. The man who goes by Senor Perfecto is a 31 year old fighting out of State College, Pennsylvania. He is 14 and five overall. He is one and one in the UFC. And while he is a Dana White's contender series alum, uh, he actually didn't win his way onto the roster there. He is the one who infamously dropped the uh, decision to non-killer Brendan Lofnan. And it is an eternal irony that Bill Aljo is now in the UFC while Brendan Lofnan is in PFL. Uh, Aljo, it, Fought most recently last November, taking a unanimous decision over Spike Carlisle. Uh, that got him back on track after dropping a unanimous decision to Ricardo Lamas in his debut in August. Uh, odds on this one, pretty close. Aljo is a slight favorite at minus 120, uh, minus 125. You can still get almost at even money out there, uh, plus 100. Tom, how do you feel about this one? <sighs> like, when you say... For whatever reason, you know, how much is five and two in the UFC, but just in my mind, it feels like things aren't going quite that well. Uh, part of that's kind of the nature of his two losses, where um, against uh, Said Nurma, uh, Nurmagomedov um, a few years ago, just, you know, basically got kicked in the stomach and just things went down from there. And then the featherweight fight against uh, Lerone Murphy, just, you know, Things were going pretty well for a few minutes, and then Murphy just immediately turned things around, and then, you know, you look up, and all of a sudden the fight is over. Um, so it's a little bit of the, I uh, forget where I heard this comparison, but kind of like the early Charles Oliveira thing, where it's kind of, all right, you know, can I trust him to kind of gut through when things go south? Um, and just, you know, the thing is... Um, it's just, yeah, as though it's a weird, he's still a guy, uh, probably on the roster, like one of the guys I at least have a feel on, uh, feel on, because uh, the, uh, yeah, there's some really spectacular moments as far as, you know, he had the spinning back elbow knockout of uh, Eamon Zahabi, just, you know, some impressive moments where it's like, okay, you've just, you know, suddenly got a flashy finish and everything, but it really feels like he's in control of a fight, um, just even against like Dreen Newsom. Uh, did way better than I expected, even in a clear loss, you know, even despite the huge difference in frame there. Um, with Bill Algeo, no such problems, even though, you know, he's a tall fighter, just, you know, doesn't use his range, range at all, just gets in, just tries to make stuff happen, basically, like, you know, just tries to pressure, you know, doesn't really care about what his um, 
opponent is coming back with. And uh, in Aldeo's case, you know, the big thing is that gets him hit a lot, but he's been historically pretty durable, and that gets him very badly tired by the third round. Um, so if Hamo uh, survives that law, you know, I think there's a chance that a late finish um, that, you know, he can turn things around on a tired Aljo because Hamo, you know, is capable again, some spectacular individual moments. But um, after the Murphy fight, I really have some um, concerns that basically Hamo can start, um, you know, basically can cut through things when things turn south. And I think the fact that Aljo is both like a fighter who can match him in size and reach and someone who is just like, not going to care and keep pressing the issue. Um, I have Aljo getting a second round stoppage, but it's basically either Aljo early or uh, Hamo late. Okay, so I see the same dynamic you do here. The you know the way their respective strengths and liabilities line up with each other. I think the place where we diverge here is just on how we think that's going to play out. The thing that concerns me about Aljo is like you said, he's a he's a big featherweight, though he doesn't fight long. Like he just likes to come forward, he likes to get messy. Uh he he for a guy who is as long as he is, he actually seems to prefer to be an infighter. Uh he's going to be way bigger than than Hamos but because he's big and because he's so aggressive he does tire himself out like you, you said and the thing that worries me is his win over Spike Carlisle is really just because he was taking on someone in Carlisle that had even worse cardio like probably I mean Spike Car Carlisle probably had the, the worst cardio in the 145 pound division when you factor in the size of the gas tank and then how hard he steps on that gas you know it makes me wonder if you know if he'd been matched against Someone else might might Aljo be zero and two in the UFC right now. That concerns me. Uh, certainly, he he might just come out and really bully Hamos in uh, in the early going. Uh, Hamos can be caught, can be hurt, can be finished early. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if we get a second round stoppage like uh, you predicting, or even a first round uh, stoppage. But I'm going to pick Hamos to survive what Aljo throws at him early on. And then the problem becomes, you know, how tired does Aljo get and how hittable does he get? Because almost is a guy that throws spectacular fight ending offense. I mean, pretty much for as long as the fight's going on. So I'm going to uh, go with the very, very slight upset here. And I'm going to pick almost by a third round TKO. The main card starts with a very intriguing middleweight matchup that was originally scheduled for UFC 262 last weekend, which I would have seen it in person since I, I covered that one live. It got booted to this card, and that's just fine with me. We were fine without it in Houston, and this card needed it. It is Jack Hermanson versus Edmund Shabazian. Hermanson, the 32-year-old Swede fighting out of Norway, is 21-6 and six overall. He is 8-4 and four in the UFC. He fought twice last year. Uh, uh, most recently losing a unanimous decision in pretty one-sided fashion to Marvin Vittori at uh, UFC on ESPN 19. Uh, previous to that, he pulled out a shocking uh, heel hook finish of Kev Kelvin Gastelum in just a minute and 18 seconds at UFC Fight Night Figueredo versus Benavidez 2. He'll be taking on uh, Shabazian, the 23-year-old Glendale Fight Club export is 11 and 1 overall. He fought just once last year where he took his first career loss in the form of a third round TKO at the hands of Derek Brunson. Uh before that, as you know, stated, he had won his first 11 fights, the last four of those 
in the UFC uh, after winning his way onto uh, or winning, winning his way into the UFC through Dana White's Contender Series uh, season two. Odds in this one slightly favor Hermanson. He is minus 155 or so. You can get Shabazian on the comeback at plus 135. And I'm just going to jump out and say I am shocked that this matchup was made. Edmund Shabazian, a year ago this time, I mean, the Golden Boy was the perfect nickname for him. He was 11-0. He was 4-0 in the UFC. He was getting spectacular first-round finishes. And while Charles Bird and Jack Marshman are, you know, they're not UFC. They're not, I don't think either of them is in the UFC anymore. Brad Tavares was still a he was still a reliable gatekeeper to the top 15 at that point. He was the guy that if you beat him, you know, like if you were Israel Adesanya and, and you handled him, it was time for you to take on a top 10 or top 15 opponent. And Shabazian just laced him. And I thought that marked his turnover from being a prospect to, wow, maybe this guy is an actual contender. He got turned away by Brunson. But... Th- it wasn't it, it wasn't just a complete loss. You know, he won a, he won the first round uh, pretty handily against a top 10 fixture and he came away with two very clear action items. He didn't have the cardio to maintain his frenetic pace if he didn't get a first round finish and despite the fact that he's like an explosive athlete and just you know fast and dynamic, he was at a strength disadvantage against a true UFC 185 pounds hoss like Derek Brunson. I'm surprised that for his so-called bounce-back fight, they give him Jack Hermanson, who is ranked higher than Brunson. He's wily and at least competent everywhere. And while he's not Derek Brunson, he's pretty physically strong. I mean, this is basically like throwing a drowning man an anvil. I can't believe they did this to Shabazian. I don't know what he did to deserve this. But basically, to me, Hermanson... If Hermanson was a slow burn as, as a contender, you know, like five years ago, he did. Well, I guess five full years ago, he wasn't in the UFC. But after his, his first few fights at light heavyweight, he didn't look like a future contender to me in, in any division. And then everything just sort of started clicking for him. And in the last four years, he's only lost to Marvin Vittori, Jared Cannonier, and Tiago Santos. I mean, those are top five guys. I. Shabbat, he can. Hermanson can be blitzed early. He can be caught. He can be finished. So Shabazian could just come out and do the Shabazian thing. Just, you know, hit him with just some wild, like, you know, back roundhouse kick or, you know, flying elbow strike and just put him away in two minutes. But if he doesn't do that, in order for him to beat Jack Hermanson, he would have had to make incredible strides in his game. Like, if he doesn't win this in the first I have three or four minutes, this is, this is rough sledding for Edmund Shabazian. I am picking. I am not picking him to get that done. I, I think uh, you know Hermanson is going to come out crabby from his loss to Vittori. I think he's going to come out uh, motivated not to take another step back in the kind of ladder of contention, especially as 185 you know remains kind of wide open at the top. I think he's going to come out. He's going to fight a smart fight, and he is a very very smart fighter. He's going to take, you know, the best of what Shabazian can throw at him for a round, and then he's going to start rolling downhill on him. Uh, give me Jack Hermanson by third-round submission. Yeah, I see a similar dynamic. Um, just to tip my hand, especially picking Hermanson by decision, although I, in making my pick, I did waffle between that and third-round submission. Um, I'm wondering, my conspiracy theory is, um, if you remember the whole thing with uh, the flag coming in there, um, 
in his fight with Brunson, where he had, I believe it was like a Armenia, something having to do with the Armenia Azerbaijan, like a separatist thing that got him in hot water with the Azerbaijani government and got an employee fired for letting him do the flag. So, so my conspiracy theory is all right, like this is why you, you know, you're no longer the golden boy. You didn't get your step back. Here is, you know, um, just, you know, they put the Azerbaijani government in charge of the matchmaking for this one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, so, you know, Shabazian, as his winning streak showed, like, okay, he has a lot of weapons, you know, right from the beginning, can score these spectacular knockouts early, and has a lot of impressive uh, offensive tools early. But like I said, you know, showed that he needs to work on his wrestling and on his cardio, especially, um, which I think, you know, the latter, you know, I'm hoping that's kind of why I'm giving the benefit of doubt to at least make it to a decision, um, even if Herman's or Armanson's a more venomous grappler than Brunson is. Um, the interesting thing, the thing that does give me some pause, where it's like, okay, you know, Shabazzian could do a Shabazzian thing. Because, um, you know, the initial read is, okay, you know, Shabazzian wins via first-round knockout. And uh, Hermanson, I believe, uh, but yeah, only Tiago Santos and Jared Carnier have been the only guys to finish him. So, you know, it's Shabazzian, that level of finisher. And, um, you know, because Hermanson's been historically pretty durable. But even, like, outside of those fights, um, like, looking at Vittori, um, also was, like, you know, was able to lay a lot on uh, Hermanson early. Just, um, I don't know, especially, like, in a three-round fight, just even if Shabazzian shocks Her- uh, Hermanson early, just how much of, like, a comeback you know, artist is Hermanson. Like, how long does it take him to get back into the fight and get back on track? Um, just like his big wins, you know, David Branch was a quick submission. So uh, Jacare was pretty much the opposite dynamic where he got out to a hot start. And then, you know, down the stretch, things started to get more even. Um, and then Gaslam just, you know, basically walked into a, a heel hook. Um, so, I mean, I do have some questions that, okay, like, basically... Ken Shabazzian get an early enough advantage that basically once the tide shifts, you know, he's basically already put like two rounds in the bank and can to hang on for the third. Um, but I think, you know, it's likelier. Like, there's so much in similar, like similar as the dynamic of the Brunson fight. Um, kind of, you know, as you talked about, you know, even though Hermanson's probably the better submission artist, but not quite as physically strong. That, um, But it's the same basic thing where, you know, if Shabazzian can't get the knockout, he can't fall back on his wrestling as a plan B, like we saw against Darren Stewart and as a UFC debut. And it just looks like it'll basically be the same fight. Um, though, again, I'm giving Shabazzian a little bit more credit to make it three rounds this time um, rather than get it finished late. All right, there you go. Two picks for Jack Hermanson in the main card opener. Next up, it's all the way back down to the flyweight division as David Dvorak will stake his 15-fight win streak against Howley and Paiva. Dvorak, the 28-year-old from the Czech Republic, is 19-3 overall. The aforementioned 15-fight win streak includes wins in his first two UFC fights last year. Uh, he defeated Bruno Silva by unanimous decision in March, and then Jordan Espinoza once again by unanimous decision in September. He'll be taking on Paiva, the 25-year-old Brazilian, is 20-3 overall. He is 2-2 since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's contender series, Brazil. He dropped his first two fights against Kai Car France and Rogerio Bontarin and has bounced back with wins over Mark De La Rosa and most recently, last July, at UFC 251, a unanimous decision over Jalgas Jumagulov. Odds are fairly close on this one, but uh, Dvorak, the slight favorite, is uh, out there at minus 145 or so. You can get Paiva at plus 120 or even plus 125 as the underdog. 
Tom, uh, how, how do you feel about this one? How's it play out? Who wins? This might be actually like, you know, going into scouting this, I was like, okay, you know, these are both two fun, underrated guys at flyweight. But, you know, I think this might actually be my odds-on favorite for best fight of the night. Like, I just really love this matchup um, and might be the hardest uh, fight on the card to call, just in terms of these guys being evenly matched. Like, even if you look statistically, um, in terms of, you know, just volume and everything, they're basically even. Um, and stylistically, there is a lot of similar as well. They're both strikers that can grapple, but do that more when pressed into action rather than they'll just look to throw down first. Um, I think Piva is going to be the one applying, you know, more forward pressure or at least leading the dance. Um, I also think he's the harder hitter, um, but Dvorak's shown me a lot um, as a really like interesting, varied fighter who's ability to, uh, able to counter. Uh, the Jordan Espinoza fight was really a big uh, step as far as showing that he can pull that off. He's, you know, um, athletic enough to do that against a quick athlete, which is basically what Espinoza mainly brings to the table. Um, I just think that, you know, basically the, the, these two are going to punch each other in the face a lot. There's not a lot, you know, to really parse between them. Um, so I think it's probably going to go the split decision route. Um, if it goes to a finish, uh, if it's a finish, I think five is the likelier, uh, finisher as a harder hitter. Um, Vorak is a little bit more, uh, is a little bit better defensively. Um, and like a little bit more varied in terms of like the light kicks you should against Espinosa, I think, could pay some dividends here. Um, so that's really all I'm going on to separate what should be a close fight in all the best ways. Like this one to me is more about the action rather than the result. But I'm picking a Vorak fight decision. Outstanding. Uh, my my concern with Paiva is I th- his his losses are better than they look, and his wins are worse than they look. Like it, it turns out that. Popping into the UFC and losing your first two fights to Kai Car France and Hodario Bonterine is, is not so bad after all. They've, they've turned out to be some pretty good fighters. Uh, but conversely, well, for one, a, a win over Mark De La Rosa in 2020, just, I mean, that, that might have been De La Rosa's fourth straight loss. It just, you know, it was, I, I believe Paiva was the one who booted him finally out of the UFC. He got one more against us because I was pretending, yeah, he got one more against Espinosa. So, which. Yeah, it's sick that I know that. But <laughs> and and then the decision win over Zhaga Zhumagulov. I mean, that sounds great on paper because Zhumagulov is a fantastic prospect. But I actually thought Paiva lost that fight, and Paiva missed weight and was the one fading late in the fight. Th- those are both concerning things, uh, because if, if this goes all three rounds, as you believe it will, and as I believe it will, I think Paiva is probably going to be the more tired man in the third round. So for him to win this fight. He's going to have to sock away rounds early uh, against a defensively fairly well buttoned up guy like Dvorak. I I don't see I don't see that happening. So I'm with you. I have Dvorak by uh, decision in this one, but I would not be surprised at all if this were the fight of the night. Uh, same as you. Continuing up the UFC Vegas 27 main card, it is a featherweight matchup between former title challenger Felicia Spencer and Norma Dumont. Spencer, the 30-year-old American, is 8-2 overall. She is 2-2 in the UFC, uh, somewhat deceptively, as those two losses are against the two greatest fighters in the history of the division in Amanda Nunes and Chris Cyborg. Uh, that Cyborg, or I'm sorry, that Nunes loss was her most uh, recent appearance. It was last June. She dropped a unanimous decision. Before that, she fought last February, uh, smashing Zara uh, Ferrando Santos in the first round uh, of their matchup. She'll be taking on uh, Dumont. Uh, Dumont, the 30-year-old Brazilian, is 5-1 and one overall. 
She is one and one in the UFC. Uh, she debuted at featherweight, got blown out by Megan Anderson in about three minutes. She then uh, announced her plans to drop to bantamweight. She came back with a unanimous decision win over Ashley Evans Smith, which was uh, slightly tarnished by the fact that she blew weight by two steak dinners. And then in her next outing, she blew weight by the whole Churrascaria, uh, causing her fight with Aaron Blanchfield, a former flyweight, we should note, to be scrapped entirely. Dumont now steps up on short notice, back up at featherweight where she apparently belongs, to replace, um, help me, Tom. Who's Daniel Wolf. Thank you, Daniel Wolf. Uh, I, I keep wanting to say Ann Wolf, like the, the <laughs> women's boxer from the 90s. Uh, yeah, Danielle Wolf, which, you know, frankly, probably gives us a, a better fight and a more competitive one. But nonetheless, they're, they're squaring off. Uh, Spencer is the favorite out there at minus 160. You can get Dumont at plus 140. And worth noting, and credits to Sherdog associate editor Jay Petrie for pointing this out uh, to me earlier this week, this might be a death knell for the UFC featherweight division. The problem is that Felicia Spencer is easily the second best featherweight in the UFC, but nobody is going to want her to see her fight Nunes again. Crazy as it sounds, if Dumont beats Spencer, she might get a title shot if, if uh, Nunes decides she wants to defend the 145-pound belt again. If Spencer beats Dumont, she's basically she might be pulling the temple down around her own ears, because not only is she the second best featherweight in the UFC, she's probably one of the very few who couldn't make 135. So, uh, tell me, does Felicia Spencer excel herself out of a job? Um, probably. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like when Spencer Wolf got made, it was kind of like, all right, like, why are we doing this? But then, you know, Wolf is basically the other woman who probably can't make 135. Um, I'm shocked at just that he's all, you know, Spencer's a really like a lot of the talk on, uh, you know, social media kind of in the MA analyst community was why is Lucia Spencer not a larger favorite? And in my mind, she's like the safest bet on the card, which now watch her lose. Um, yeah. Dumont, um, like, you know, Dumont, the odd thing is, you know, she fought at a lot of like 135 and 140, you know, part of the UFC. So, I mean, she's made that weight in Brazil. Um, yeah, and like going into the Megan Anderson fight, I was like, okay, you know, there's a lot of stuff I like here. You know, she's able to like bully, like you know, and physically overmatch opponents. Then you realize, oh, she's a bantamweight moving up to featherweight, and then that's not going to work against Megan Anderson. She got smashed. Um, so I mean, that's basically the dynamic for her. It's still a lot of aggression and will over any sort of real technique, and for her, that works against bantamweights and does not work against featherweights. She's you know stuck in the middle. So I really hope for her sake she figures out how to you know get her weight cut in order and make it to 135 pounds. Um, Cause I mean, that division's relatively wide open, you know, in a few years, you know, maybe she can actually be something at that weight, even though, like you said, you know, with a win here, she becomes immediate number one contender. Um, Spencer, you know, I mean, she still isn't a particularly good striker, but just uh, the cyborg and Nunes fights both shown that she can take an absolutely inhuman amount of punishment. Um, so unless the thought is that, you know, her, Shin is completely shot after those, which, you know, she didn't get knocked out. So you, usually it's, you know, the Shin getting cracked and getting knocked out. That would be something to that uh, would make me think that. Like, I don't really see Dumont's path to victory here since Spencer's, like, a legitimately solid wrestler. And, you know, basically, you know, even if Dumont has some, some success, that success is going to come with her looking to pressure 
and that is just going to set her up for if Felicia Spencer take her down. And like, you know, it's not even like Dumont can outlast her because Felicia Spencer is also like a very good finisher on the ground. Um, so, I mean, it may take a few minutes, but I'm picking Spencer by a ground and pound stoppage, probably either ground and pound stoppage or submission. Uh, I'm picking ground and pound stoppage in late in the first round. Fantastic. Thank you. When I look at Dumont, both the limited amount of tape that's available on her before she came to the UFC, because again, you know, she, I think was four and zero when she came to the UFC. And then obviously her two fights in the UFC, I get a similar dynamic with her as I do to Gina Mazzani, who fought here in Houston just last weekend, not in the specifics of their game because Mazzani wants to grapple and Dumont would prefer to strike, but in that their game runs on them being the physically stronger fighter. I mean, it helps if they're the better wrestler, but it, it definitely runs on them being the, the physically stronger fighter in, in the cage. And for that reason, Felicia Spencer is about the worst imaginable matchup for her. I can't believe these odds are as close as they are either. This is my lock of the night as well, uh, because Spencer is brutishly strong and she's a good wrestler and she is a fantastic top position grappler. She's out. She's heavy on top. She's good at throwing strikes. And uh, while, I mean, she probably could have more ground and pound uh, TKOs if she wanted, she uses those surprisingly stinging strikes to soften up her opponents, make him give up the back. And, I mean, she's choked out Megan Anderson, choked out Pam Sorensen, which is an underratedly fantastic win for her. Uh, like, Norma Dumont is not going to be the stronger woman in there. She's not going to be able to fight at the range she wants. Spencer's just going to crash the pocket, throw her on the ground, just you know, basically dump her on her head, punch her a few times, and either choke her out, you know, or or just finish it with punches. But yeah, give give me Spencer by uh, first round. Uh, I'll say I'll say submission. I'll say she softens her up and then and then chokes her out. And again, that that crashing you hear around your ears is, you know, Felicia Spencer basically possibly destroying her own job and maybe heading back over to Invicta, or you know. Who knows, to Bellator. We now reach the uh, feature fight of the evening. And if Rothwell versus Barnett was the uh, requisite heavyweight slobber knocker, then Justin Toffa versus Jared Vanderaa is the obligatory. This fight is only on the main card because it's heavyweights fight of the evening. Toffa, the 27-year-old fighting out of uh, New South Wales, is 4-2. and two. Overall, he is one and two in the UFC. Uh, he fought most recently in January, losing a split decision to Carlos Felipe at UFC on ABC one, though in fairness, it should be noted that I scored that fight for Tafa and so did quite a few other people. Uh, but you know, take that for what it's worth. He's one and two in the UFC. Maybe he could be two and one at any rate. He is taking on uh, Vandera, the man who calls himself the mountain uh, is 29 years old. He is 11 and 5 overall. He is 0 and 1 since joining the UFC out of uh, Dana White's Contender Series last November. He debuted in February at UFC Fight Night Blades versus Lewis, where he lost to Sergey Spivak by second round TKO on the ground. Uh, odds in this one do favor Tafa. He is minus 175, where Vandera is plus 155. Okay. I. I'll never say that uh, that a heavyweight has no chance of becoming a contender because the thing about heavyweight is literally anybody in the world is four wins away from a title shot in the, in the UFC heavyweight division. 
if you can win your first four fights in the UFC heavyweight division, you're on the doorstep of a title shot. So Justin Toffa falls in that category as well. I don't think it's going to happen, but this is my long way around to saying that, okay, I believe Justin Toffa does belong in the UFC. I am not only do I, do I not think Jared Vanderaw probably belongs in the UFC. I'm having a tough time pointing to any one thing he does on a UFC level other than weigh 265 pounds. Uh, that, that, that's about it. I mean, his, his win over Harry Hunsucker on the contender series was one of the worst contender series, heavy heavyweight fights I can remember. And then despite the fact that Vanderaw is a legitimately huge guy, like he's another of those Rothwell types where he's not that fat. And yet you can tell he probably cuts weight to make 265. He is a gigantic dude. And despite that, Sergey Spivak, one of the smaller heavyweights in the UFC, took him down at will with ease. And Vanderock couldn't get back up. And Spivak beat the piss out of him. Like that's, and there you go. Spivak is a guy who might be another win or two away from like scaring the top 10. Uh, luckily for Vanderock, I don't picture Tafa like, you know, shooting an outside single on him. Uh, like that's not Tafa's game. Tafa's going to wade in and uh, throw haymakers and, you know, some of his surprisingly effective kicks perhaps. But even there, I, I think he's going to have significant advantages in speed. I think uh, he's going to have significant advantages, advantages in, in power, especially with his punches. I just, I think Tafa's going to be able to bounce into range on, on Vanderop and knock him out. And if Vanderaw happens to come back with something that hurts Tafa, I could see Tafa hitting a desperation reactionary double and taking him down and either recovering or surprising himself and everybody else by, you know, like winning the fight on the ground. I've got Tafa in this one uh, big time. Uh, and again, it's not because I particularly believe in Tafa, but I just I think he's probably better than Vanderaw everywhere. Give me Tafa by first round knockout. I also have Tafa by a first round knockout. Um I'm still not entirely like, you know, I can see why like the odds are relatively like still somewhat narrow. Like, you know, you can only trust Tafa so much. Um, yeah, you know, I, I like some of what he does. Um, you know, it was only three, and zero when the UFC signed him and just watching, you know, all three fights prior to his UFC debut, like his first like pro debut was just absolute wild mess. And like by fight number three, it was like, okay, you've, you know, gotten a little bit more poise. You don't freak out as soon as someone's punching back to you. It's like, all right, you know, the the grow arc the um the growth curve, you know, his arc of improvement looked good enough that it's like, all right, if the UFC actually waited another two years or so to bring you in, it's like, okay, you might be ready to make an impact. As it is, he's, you know, solid puncher with, you know, some good ideas. Um, as the Felipe fight showed, you know, cardio's an issue because that just turned into an absolute sweaty mess by the end. Um Vandera, just like you said, um, you know, there wasn't much available of him prior to the uh, UFC fought a lot in South Africa. And then uh, his contender series fight was, you know, him getting basically, you know, knocked around by a much smaller and probably not a UFC level, uh, Harry Hunsucker, and then just basically turning things around by being a giant dude and just, you know, I'm using my size, I will pound this out, and then it was over. Um, so heading into the Spivak fight, it was like, okay, you know, as the Rothwell comparison was something I was going to make, and more latter-day uh, latter Ben Rothwell, that the fact that Vandera is big and seemed pretty durable going into uh, this UFC debut, it was like, okay, is this enough to 
you just you know get a win despite not really showing much else not really there's ufc level skill being just the fact that he is large and this be back fight but just nope you know proof of concept nope out the window um yeah like i mean the thing is like um I believe Vander Sapp have all been like at least you know on the mat or something. So I don't trust Taffa to get a takedown uh, quite as much as you do, uh, as you. Uh, so I mean, I think if Taffa doesn't score a first round knockout, like you know, if basically the coin flip just says that Vander is like fairly durable on this day, that Vander could just like grind out a completely ugly, terrible decision that will just make us all hate life. Um, so it's a little bit of wish casting that, you know, okay, just top, I guess this over done with early. Um, yeah. Just top of my first round knockout, please. Just for all of our sakes. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, like let us hope that uh, Tom Feely has not manifested into existence, a miserable three round fight that will make us all question our life choices. That brings us to the co-main event of UFC Fight Night 188. And the co-main, same as the main, is a fantastic fight with uh, some serious and possibly immediate title implications. It is a strawweight matchup between Xiaonan Yan and the former, the first, the original UFC strawweight champ, Carla Esparza. Yan, the 31-year-old, is... 13 and 1 with one no contest overall. She is 6 and 0 in the UFC and after the first 3 of those did uh, finally earn the right to fight outside of Asia uh, and in the last basically 2 years she is on uh, a three fight tear over Angela Hill, Carolina Kovalkiewicz and most recently last November Claudia Gadelia whom she defeated by unanimous decision at UFC on ESPN Santos versus Teixeira. She will meet Esparza, as stated, the uh, the first strawweight champ of the UFC, which uh, she achieved by defeating Rose Nama Yunus in the Tough 20 finale. She is 33 years old. She is uh, 17 and 6 overall, 8 and 4 in the UFC, and she is on a four-fight win streak. Uh, those wins coming over Verna Janjaroba, Alexa Grasso, and then uh, last May, Michelle Waterson by split decision. And last uh, July, uh, in a bit of an eye-opener, uh, a split decision over Marina Rodriguez at UFC on ESPN, Whitaker versus Till. Uh, despite Esparza's uh, fairly impressive uh, mid-career comeback, uh, Jan is the favorite here. She is minus 125, where Esparza is out there at plus 105 as the slight underdog. Well, uh, we come full circle as the uh, the original strawweight champ that I, at least, and I think a lot of others, kind of counted out against the the kind of new generation that, that sprung up in her wake is arguably on the doorstep of, of a title shot again. Uh, certainly for as long as Rose Nami Yunus wears that belt, there is there's a rematch to be made. There's some, you know, th there's a little bit of spark there. But in order for any of that to happen... Uh, she'll need to get past uh, Yan Xiaonan. Tom, does she do it? Maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, this is one where you know, usually like a hard. You know, if there's a hard fight to call, it's usually like okay. Like I don't really know exactly what's going to happen. It's like with this one, it's a pretty clear dynamic, but it's just a question of like, all right, you know, 
putting your thumb on the scale, kind of who gets the advantage. Um, Asparza obviously is going to look to wrestle. Um, that's, you know, the bread and butter of her game. And, you know, she's been able to become, a, you know, more effective as a striker, but um, the margins are just getting a lot thinner. Um, definitely at least the last two, I believe maybe even the last three of her wins have all been, uh, or at least three out of the four on this uh, recent win streak have all been split decision. Um Rodriguez fight, uh, basically a question I have going into this is, you know, how Marina Rodriguez is Jan Leonan, um, just as far as being able to, uh, you know, at least throw offense from her back, if not just get up entirely. Um, yeah, you know, Jan, again, like, you know, as far as the wrestler, Jan or bread and butter is her striking. I mean, the breakout win over Karolina Kovalkovich was just an absolutely brutal, like, you know, it was tough to watch, but it was also an excellent showcase for what she can do on the feet. Um, and so it's just a matter of, yeah, like, the, going into this, like, I had, a, what was it, two, two, three weeks ago now, the, um, I believe I said something on Twitter about the uh, Rodriguez Michelle Watterson fight, basically saying, like, okay, you know, um, basically I called exactly where it's like, I'm going to pick against Marina Rodriguez, knowing as I scream that she cannot wrestle. She's going to get out wrestled at will, and she is going to win anyway. And then I'm going to wonder why I wasn't smart enough in the first place to just pick <laughs> Rodriguez. And then I get to reuse this tweet, you know, two or three weeks later about Jan Janan. It was kind of because I hadn't done my scouting yet. Um, and Jan, you know, she's shown... You know, looking at her fight against Angela Hill, um, looking at, like, the way, you know, she had a tough first round against uh, Claudia Gadella, but, uh, you know, in the latter rounds, just basically it's like, I believe she showed enough that it's like, okay, this is not going to be a complete blowout on the mat. Um, but then the question becomes, you know, as far as uh, at least, you know, you said counter out and stuff like that, like, again, the margins have gotten thinner as far as, like, you know, earlier on in her UFC career and when she was evicted and stuff, it was like the fact that she could wrestle meant like she clearly controlled and like would dominate her bouts, uh, just her chain wrestling. And it was, you know, um, if she'd get in on it, it would be like, okay, that's more or less a wrap. Um, while you're seeing against kind of the newer generation is also as she's, you know, getting a little bit older and focusing a little bit more on striking, that it's like, okay, there's some more momentum swings that she isn't completely controlling the fight. Um, and she was getting very tired late, which is another thing. Um, so, I mean, I expect like at least in the first round, as far as to get the wrestling done um and then you know the question is when does she get tired and then in those um moments on the feet and also from her back uh can Jan basically throw enough offense with enough power to kind of make up that gap um or even score a late finish um basically you know i wrote this down i even said like in my write-up like this has all the markings of a split decision and you know that's kind of gonna be my pick um i'm picking Jan to come out with the nod uh just you know in general i tend to favor damage over uh control um but i think this is going to be a nip tuck fight um with a lot of you know interesting momentum swings and stuff but i'm going with Jan via decision yeah i i i feel everything you're, you're putting down there the the difficulty that i've had with Jan is avoiding uh, lumping her in with Li Zhang. It's easy to do because, you know, they're both from yeah. China. They both debuted around the same time, started winning all their fights. But there are subtle differences between the two. And one one difference from, in my opinion, is that Zhang is a little bit better of a wrestler, both offensively and defensively. And she is physically stronger. Right. Like she's just like a burlier woman. Like she's ridiculously muscled. Uh, because of that, I do think Esparza will have you know, a, a good bit of success, at least early on, getting the takedown uh, against Jan. She's a fantastic wrestler. She's, 
I really, you know, you can make an argument that she's the the best kind of technical clinical wrestler in the division. I mean, she she lost to, to Tatiana Suarez, but a big part of that is that Tatiana Suarez is so much bigger, so strong, younger. Uh, and moving but up yeah. to flyweight, apparently. So. Yeah, and moving up to flyweight, which is, uh, frankly, good news for most of the people in the strawweight division. Yeah, like, this this one, I agree, has Splitter written all over it. And, I mean, normally, I I don't predict a fight to be a split decision, but there are certain fights where you're like, okay, there are a lot of individual rounds that will be tough to score, and you'll people will probably score them based on what they value in a fight rather than disagreements over what actually happened in the cage. Yeah. Um, the fact that Esparza's uh, gas tank can't keep up with her motor the way it could five years ago is definitely worrying. If that were not the case, I'd feel comfortable, or well, I'd feel more comfortable picking her here. I don't right now. It's it's tough. You know, this would be a great story if she fought her way back to another uh, title shot, and especially if it was a, a rematch with Rose Namajunas, obviously. But yeah, I, I can't pick her to get through to get through Jan. This certainly has decision written all over it. Jan has six straight decisions in the UFC. But it'll it'll be a fun fight. Uh, definitely, we're definitely going to have momentum swinging from one way to the other because I do fully expect Esparza to win the first round. Uh, but yeah, give me Jan by uh, by decision, and it will leave us wondering what it would look like if this were the fight night headliner and it were five rounds. And that is 12 fights down, and we arrive at the main event of UFC Fight Night 188, also known as UFC Vegas 27. It is a bantamweight, high-stakes contenders matchup between Rob Font and Cody Garbrandt. Font, the 33-year-old Bostonian, is 18-4 and overall. He is 8-3 in the UFC. He is currently on a three-fight win streak. Uh, that win streak coming against your new Bellator uh, Bantamweight champion, Sergio Pettis, back in 2018, Ricky Simone in 2019, and most recently, last December, uh, Marlon Moraes, whom he destroyed with uh, an elbow strike and follow-up punches at UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neil. He'll be taking on Garbrandt, the former champ, a 29-year-old from Ohio. He is 12-3 and overall. He is seven and three in the UFC. He fought most recently last June, uh, absolutely starching Rafael Asuncao in the closing seconds of the second round of their matchup with a knockout of the year uh, candidate. That put the end to a three-fight skid for the former champ. Those uh, three losses coming to TJ Dillashaw in their their two championship matches, and then to Pedro Munoz. This one, as of the time of this recording, is a pick'em. Both Font and Garbrandt are minus 110. I think there's a funny kind of dynamic here, Tom. And I talked about it uh, with you kind of off air before we started recording that Garbrandt, he has this, like, there's a certain narrative about him that, you know, he was gone and now he's back. Even though he and Font have the exact same number of fights since, since 2018. Uh, I think it's been a problem for Font because he's so good. On paper, his resume should have like people marching and demonstrating outside the UFC offices for him to get the next title shot. But because he's been fighting once a year for the last three years, it's, it's an out of sight, out of mind thing, especially in a division with as many spectacular fit, highlight finishes and as many big personalities as Bantamweight has. 
You know, if you're just a really, really good boxer who's kind of got a genial personality, fighting once a year isn't enough to keep you kind of in the front of the public consciousness, I don't think. He has a chance here to, to remedy uh, some of those problems. This will be his, his quickest fight turnaround in like three years. Uh, Garbrandt would certainly be a signature win for him. Uh, just it's a, it's a matter of getting it done. And then obviously for, for Garbrandt, if you're a former champ, you always have a quicker uh, route back to a title shot than, you know, than the average fighter. And it's more, I mean, it's, I think it's, it comes into play more the more crowded the division is, which certainly ba men's bantamweight, you know, uh, counts as that. But I mean, tell me if Cain Velasquez came back to the UFC tomorrow that, that he wouldn't have a title shot within two fights. You know, like, yeah, if, you, if, if you've had I the title, you. <laughs> you know, I, I guess they figure, hey, you know, we've, we've already got a poster with your name on it. We just, you know, put someone else's name on the other side. I, I don't know what it is. But again, for, for both these guys, uh, it all, you know, the, the road goes through the, the Saturday headliner. Tell me who you have in this one and, and why. <laughs> huh. um, like, Font's interesting because, like, for a while, my read on him was, you know, because you look at him in his wins and his wins just look outstanding. And just, you know, a lot of just, you know, he can hold his own on both the feet and on the mat. Um, just really, like, solid pressure game, you know, really good finishing instincts, just a real lot to like. But then whenever they would give him a big step up in competition and it wasn't so much a step up as like stylistically, they put him against guys like John Lineker and Pedro Munoz, who were basically also looking to pressure and throw volume and font in those fights would always be the guy who backed off. Um, and, you know, his last two wins, you know, Ricky Simone, uh, Marlon Rice, you know, those are a guy where you look on paper and you say like, okay, he has solved, he has solved that issue. He has beaten two, you know, aggressive fighters. Um, the Simone fight, um, you know, I mean, Simone's like a lot more of a, uh, I would say, a technical wild man than, you know, those two. And even though you could see Font, like, would take a step back, but he would be able to kind of, you know, smartly pick apart Simone's lack of technique and just, you know, hit him at will, basically, just to Simone's lack of defense. So it's like, okay, you know, you've passed, you know, that's an interesting test. How much does that carry you? And then the Marais fight was just very weird and that Marais just all of a sudden just looked to wrestle. And then basically, like, the way that fight played out, it was both an impressive win for Font, but also I wouldn't be surprised if two years from now we look back as that's the point when kind of the, you know, the, um, like, the killing floor that is Bantamweight, you know, basically claimed Marais as a victim, basically. Like, that this could be the beginning of a downslide. Um... So I'm really curious to see just if Garbrandt brings any sort of pressure and just with the power that he can bring, how subsequent to that Font reacts. Um, and then on Garbrandt's side, um, he showed a little bit more of, you know, I mean, you know, the brawling stuff is like, okay, you know, you hit the button and basically he just throws everything out the window and tries to hunt for the knockout. You know, that's well-trod territory at this point. Um, he looked a bit more patient against Sun Sao at first, but I think even by the second round, you could see him starting to get a little bit more wild, and then he just hit that absolutely beautiful, spectacular knockout. Um, 
but I think, you know, while he may go into, it's almost like, um, I always think back to the Dustin Poirier fight, and, you know, Poirier did eventually turn the corner, but the Dustin Poirier fight against Jim Miller, where, um, you know, Poirier after the fight talked about, like, I went in saying, like, okay, you know, not do a brawl doing this, and, like, you know, it started first, and then Miller brought enough action, and then that all just went out the window. Um, well, I still have my questions, like, Sun Sao was not a guy who was ever going to bring any sort of danger to Garbrandt. Um, so basically it's like, okay, without, you know, e- even without that lack of danger, he still lost his cool, you know, by the second round and, you know, he had enough advantage in terms of hand speed and just, you know, they able to do a lot of stuff that he was able to just get wild and get, do the knockout, uh, get, score the knockout. And, but I'm curious to see, okay, you know, it, it, this goes one or two ways and it's kind of like, all right, you know, based on how Garbrandt approaches this, if, you know, if Garbrandt decides to lay back and be more patient, then Font is going to pressure, and then this is going to, you know, then basically things are going to start happening at one point in exchanges, and then it's, all right, you know, what happens first? Does Font, um, you know, does Garbrandt's power discourage Font from that game plan and, you know, cause him to back off? Or do we just get basically a replay of the Munoz fight where it's okay, like, we're just doing rock and sock and robots? And then, you know, the question is, like, Going into the Garbrandt Munoz fight, I picked Garbrandt expecting the fight to go how it did, and it just turned out like, all right, like Pedro Munoz is just as a rock, as a, like a head made of rocks, basically. You just can't knock him out. So I could see this going a certain way, like, you know, sooner rather than later, going into, you know, as long as Font is willing to press the issue, going into a crazy exchange. And then it becomes, you know, Font has, I believe, never been knocked out, but has he been hit by someone as hard as Garbrandt? And that's why I don't know. Um, you know, I, I'm choosing this to go, you know, I could see this going the way where, okay, Font backs off and then we just get Garbrandt winning like a surprisingly slow-paced decision. But I, I think either given, an either if Font presses the action or if Font lays back and gives Garbrandt enough time to just start to like get wild that we're going to get one of the, like those wild exchanges, like I think this will devolve at some point. And at that point, I basically just have to pick Font as the guy who has not been knocked out, as the guy who has not shown to go completely off the rails and implode, even though, you know, that may not matter. And Garbrandt may just be a powerful enough and fast enough hitter that he just knocks Font out. But my pick is still Font to get the better of the exchanges, uh, score knockout. And I'm saying it happens early in the first round. Outstanding. Uh, I'm I'm really happy with a. a several uh, points that you made there because they kind of mirrored what I was thinking as I watched these guys last couple of fights. And it's for me, it's worth noting that the only uh, real valuable things to watch here for me are their last couple of fights that my problem is that Garbrandt's win over Asuncao doesn't really like, it, it doesn't fully convince me that he's not still that wild guy. And it's for the very reason you pointed out that, Asun Sao was never going to be the guy to pull that kind of uh, that kind of performance out of Garbrandt. And even so, he still seemed to get kind of nervy and impatient in the second round. On the flip side, Font's last three fights, he seems to be growing in confidence and in poise uh, in, in a way that, like you say, if, if Cody starts to get sloppy and crazy, does not bode well for him. Uh, Font is that rare guy that, yeah, he's been fighting once a year, but he's been visibly improving between fights. And that's something you expect of a 23-year-old, but not necessarily a 33-year-old, especially when one of those layoffs was basically on the shelf with a knee injury for most of a year. Like you don't you just you don't expect that. 
he's always been a good boxer, but and the the cliche I overuse is that there are some fighters that, who have you know who have a very good jab, but for them the jab is a tool. You know, it establishes distance, it disrupts the opponent's rhythm, and then there are guys for whom the jab is a weapon. It breaks orbitals, it splits eyebrows open. If it catches someone off balance, it sits them on their butt, which is what he did to Marlon Marais. And what really set up the finish was just fought, destroyed him with his jab. Uh, Garbrandt will have to navigate that in order to get into the, the punching distance that he wants to be at. And I think Font's going to make him pay. I, I, I think Font's uh, jab is probably going to be stuck to Garbrandt's face for a lot of however long this goes on. Uh, Garbrandt is probably the hardest hitter at 135, you know, with all apologies to, you know, John Lineker or John Dodson insert name of crushing hitter here it's probably Garbrandt and certainly if, if you know he does navigate that distance and uh and and lands on Font's chin we might see something we've never seen before you know we might see Font staring up at the lights I'm not picking it I'm picking Font to be disciplined and just consistently make Garbrandt pay uh on on the feet Garbrandt turns and tries to wrestle obviously he's a very good wrestler he could have been a college uh, wrestler if he didn't prefer getting in knife fights in parking lots. Uh, but I'm not picking that to happen. Or if it does happen, it's going to happen once Garbrandt's already beat up and compromised. And it'll be more of a moot point at that point. I do like this to get out of the first round. But give me Rob Font by second round TKO. A uh, couple of quick bonus questions. How close is the winner of this fight to a title shot? Assuming it ends in uncontroversial fashion. Like one guy either knocks out the other or, or takes a very clear decision. Like how close is the winner of this to a title shot? I mean, I'd have to think relatively close. I mean, the question is, you know, does that uh, title, if it's Garbrandt, does that title shot come at Bantamweight? Uh, I mean, that's the other interesting thing that, um, you know, he was in talk, he was supposed to fight a Figueredo and then the whole uh, COVID thing happened, which was another concern rather of us addressed. It might be another reason really to uh, fade Garbrandt. Um, I mean, it's... I mean, it's got to be right, because, I mean, you have the whole Beyond Strong thing going on, um, which I know, you know, yeah, because I'm thinking either way, I was like, okay, is there any chance of a trilogy fight there? But I think either way, no matter what the result is, unless the result is controversial, that, um, you know, the on Sterling winner will be uh, smooth sailing from there. So, I mean, it's basically, you know, just looking really quickly at the rankings, it's got to be the winner of this fight or the winner of the uh, Dillashaw-Sandagen fight um, coming up. So I think if it is... Yeah, kind of thing, you know, if it's Sterling and Sandhagen, do, uh, does the UFC go to that rematch? Um, you know, then that would probably put the winner of this fight in the catbird seat. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of those two guys. So it's like, you know, I don't know what they would do in the interim, but whoever wins this, especially with the end of the layoffs these guys have been having, uh, that, you know, by the time this, they come back around, uh, it could be another cycle and they're ready for a title fight. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Tom, for uh, appearing on the show yeah, with no me, for, for jumping in, being Johnny on the spot. It is always a pleasure to have your insights and analysis on, on these fights. Uh, unless you got any last thoughts, I'm just going to sign off for these folks. No, I think we're uh, good, because what was it? Just uh, I think, did we uh, we pretty much matched on everything, right? Just um, We differed on... Javier Hamas, was that it? Uh we both had Dvorak, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that was it. <laughs> so uh, we, we, shall, we shall see. Uh, this 
that does it. That's all 13 fights from UFC Fight Night 188, also known as UFC Vegas 27. Uh, I have been Ben Duffy, SureDog Senior Editor. Uh, he has been Tom Feely, SureDog Official Preview Writer. Uh, make sure to well, make sure to have a great week. Make sure to enjoy the fights uh, to whatever extent that is practical, since you know some of these don't promise a whole lot. And of course, immediately after the main event, uh, make sure to hop onto either the SureDog front page or directly through the SureDog YouTube page and join the live recap afterwards with Keith Schillen and myself, where we will take your questions, we will take your comments. If our picks are terrible, we will take your abuse. Uh, but between now and then, thank you for listening to the SureDog Radio Network.